On Racing HQ, Monday's Experts, studying the form of racing's characters. Monday's Experts, he'd have always got the good oil, pity you can't put a bet on at the finish of a race. Well, welcome to Monday's Experts, and given that I'm in the chair for this segment, I don't know whether it might be the first and only time I thought to myself, I'd like to have a chat with a guy who I, when I've ever been in his company, which haven't been a stack of times, I've always found interesting, not just from a racing perspective, but he's a guy that has opinions and thoughts uh, on lots of different topics. And I thought, well, I may as well go to a, a Hall of Fame trainer who, if his website is correct, I don't know if he's updated it lately, but nearly 4,000 winners, 128 Group 1 winners, Four Caulfield Cups, five Melbourne Cups, four Golden Slippers, two Cox Plates, 12 Derbies. Where do you want to stop and start with the man we're about to have a chat to? And his name is Lee Friedman. G'day, Lee. Richard, you make me sound like a Hall of Fame know-all. <laughs> well, well, some would suggest, I Lee. I <laughs> one of your One of your brothers, and I'm not sure whether Richard and Michael have just turned their radios off, but one of, one of, your, bro- <laughs> one of your brothers, I recall saying... And I won't name which one says he believes you're as close, and, and nothing improves them like being your brother, brother. But he said you're as close to a genius as he thinks he has known, which is a lovely rap from one of, one of your brothers. But how would you respond yeah. to that comment? Um, disbelief, but um, <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, yeah, total disbelief. Um, he must have been very, very drunk, whoever it was. <laughs> yeah. Are you, uh, is, are you a Gold Coaster these days, Lee? Well, I'm living here and um, I'm happy to say that the weather's extraordinarily good this week after having a lot of wind um, last week and over the weekend. It's, uh, it's, a, very pleasant, uh, it's a very pleasant place. Um, don't know that you get the same opportunities up here that you may get in the southern states because that's, I guess that's got a lot to do with uh, the economic viability of having better horses up here, but I think that's on the improve. Um, not keeping a pace with uh, the southern states, so so um, yeah, it's an interesting place. But recent announcements in Queensland with the hikes in prize money, renovations, mm. and what they want to do with the Gold Coast—that's mm. that's a bit more appealing to be there as well, I'd imagine. Look, look, it is. Um, I possibly came here about a year earlier than I should have because we've had to. You know, and it's nobody's fault. There is a $31 million reconstruction going on here. And, and with that, and I've been through reconstructions at Caulfield and Flemington, I think, and all over the place. So they're never easy for the participants, and I, and I assume they're not easy for the uh, for the people putting in the, the replacements. But I'm happy to say that the polytrack is down here now, and we're test, uh, test driving it tomorrow morning with some few of the trainers uh, I'm going to let some horses can around on it. I walk around it this morning, and I, and I think it's top notch. So um, that's the first part. The second part is obviously the, the construction of the new stable block in Train Tech, which will be a little bit more pain for a period of time. And then thirdly, there'll be the the reconstruction, resurfacing of the track. So there's some, and, and the lights going in. Obviously, for night racing will be the last thing. But uh, there's some certainly some serious uh, improvements going on up here. And the announcement last week of the uh, of the thirty one million dollars extra prize money, which is actually uh, split between the three codes, so I think racing gets about seventeen million out of it. But to be fair, anything any movement in that direction is good. 
and you've mentioned the first and the second parts. The third part for you is to try and find that next good horse through a yearling sale. And uh, I mean, oh, yeah. you're, you've done it all, Lee, but I'd imagine in your mind is the, the search always is on for that next really gun racehorse. Well, well, it is. And, it can, and, you know, Richard, it can happen at any time too. Um, you know, we're living in an era now, not dissimilar to, to, to when we, we were running a massive stable in Melbourne, but we're in an era now where there's, there's very large stables a lot of them financially backed by syndicates buying cult, cult syndicate horses and that and that somewhat distorts the prices but um, look, a good horse can come from anywhere and, and I'll certainly be going there not to shop at that, that upper level but to be shopping around and find you know nice horses at, a, at, at what appears to be a value price in the current market and um, you know, if, if if money, I guess I guess the bottom line is if, if spending huge amounts of money on yearlings was the answer to everything, then, then the ones that made all the money would be all the good ones, but we all know that's not true. So a good horse can come from anywhere. Not to make this a, a trip down memory lane at any, any reason, Lee, but it's hard no. not to in many respects. I mean, it's a very big question to ask, but, I mean, your, your early experience with, with horses on tipping would have been pretty early. Yeah, I uh, well, I, I grew up in a family that had a fascination, particularly my father and my grandfather had a fascination for racing horses. And my grandmother, my father's mother, was daughter of um, Bill McLaughlin, who was a champion jockey back at the turn of the century. So there's always been an influence of racing in the family. I, I actually didn't have much contact with horses other than, you know, park horses or pony club and that until I probably... Um, Went used to go to Joe Manning's farm in the school holidays, and your duties there usually was was riding rough ones and and but also marking sheep and doing everything else that you had to do around the farm. And, uh, it was great. It was fantastic. I used to love doing that. Going out of Cootamundra, and of course, Tommy Smith was in his, you know, in his not so much twilight years, but in the in the latter part of his career, and most of his horses spelled down there and trained down there and. It was actually down there that I, I learned to ride. Joe, poorly mad. Um, Joe taught me to ride on, on an old um, TJ uh, gelding down there. But it, they were great days. And, and being hands-on with such good horse people, you, you tend to pick a lot of it up. You had a crack at uni at a point, I believe? Yeah, I got... Um, ridiculously, I got early acceptance into ANU and a science degree because I, I was the youngest kid in my class. I was only 16 and seven months I think when I left when I completed my final year because what, it, what in fact happened I I went to Scots in Sydney and my brother elder brother Mark who's unfortunately been handicapped all his life had been booked in there early and, and obviously couldn't uh, make that booking so my parents sent me instead and, and so I was the youngest of my year to, to graduate from the school um, and tried to get into vet science uh, and only missed by uh, you know probably hundreds of marks um, so I thought, well, the second way to get through in those days was to immediately do a year's science and then apply for a crossover into veterinary science. So, um, but I, lamentably, um, I guess the, uh, the the pull of the the pull of the race the races and uh, handling horses and that became too strong. We were living in Yass on pretty big farm there, a bit of a stud situation and and training horses there and. Uh, 
I guess my year at university mainly, I did pass, but not, not what you'd call anything very really distinguished. And uh, um, I think my old man realised that I was majoring in um, pool and uh, beer drinking and girl chasing. And um, there wasn't really a degree for that. So, <laughs> so I, I went back to the farm and, and ran, uh, you know, ran the, the family horse stud, which involved um, standing anything up to three stallions at a time. And uh, and then from there, my, my passion for, for the training side of it sort of developed. Just to fast forward it a little bit, Lee, and I suppose we might be fast forwarding to maybe the early to mid-90s. And I remember at, at, from my point of view, I'd just begun at Willie Minglison's son. And you'd go on yearling inspections out around the place and I'd go with a might have been a Vin Cox or a Jonathan Darcy, Glenn Burrows, and you go into these paddocks and these yearlings come towards you and they'd be by Danehill and um, didn't know much about this horse at the time and some of their legs were not great and whatever else. And then, and, and I remember Glenn would say, yeah, we'll take that. We'll take that one. Yeah, no, that'll be right. That'll be fine. Tell us about the Danehills. Well, a remarkable horse because... Um when he first came here to stand, he was he was obviously at Arrowfield. Um, and I think John had done a deal with Coolmore and Ireland. Coolmore had bought the horse. I think Jeremy Tree trained the horse. And he, he was an exciting sprinter in England. And he was a Danzig line horse. And I, I was quite interested and boned up a bit on Danzig. And and um, he was one of the, the, the first recognised Danzig line horses to come to Australia. And... Uh, I remember at the time, the wonderful George Smith, who I hope is still with us. I haven't heard from George for a while, so I sincerely hope that George is fit and well. But George used to give me a hand uh, for a year or two selecting yearlings. And, and I said to him, I've got a particular interest in this horse, um, Danehill. He was a magnificent sprinter. Um, and they've got great bone. But he said, yeah, but they're all back at the knee. They've all got crooked legs. And I said, yeah, well, that's true. But I said that you know you might get them a bit cheaper, and George wouldn't wouldn't really have a bar of them. He he recognised that they had very good frames, but he just couldn't. He didn't like the legs, and he sort of said, "Well, you're on your own with that." And I think it was the the first year they were sold. The the main the first main sale was was not here at Magic Meadows. It was called the sale of the Sanctuary. Mm-hmm. I think there was some blue on between the breeders and Magic Meadows, and so they conducted the sale out at Sanctuary Cove and. You'd well remember, Richard, they had a temporary uh, stabling put up, like mm-hmm. tents for the horses. and It's quite remarkable, really. And we bought Dan Zero there for 55000 uh, because he was out of a mare, which I actually prepared as a yearling uh, that John Massara uh, had bought in a race called Confidentially. And, uh, and she, her mother, my old man, had bought it as a yearling and raced as well called Idisa, and it was an outstandingly good race mare. Probably her record wouldn't suggest that, but um, anyway, look, so there was a familial thing there, and it all sort of came together, and we were fortunate enough to buy him very cheaply, and several others, I think, that year at other sales we bought, and not one of them uh, disappointed. They all had really good ability. One of my earliest memories on a, on a race course was that golden slipper. I was, I think, I was standing at um, about the furlong point when Flying Spur leaned into it. And there are some things you don't forget on a race course, and I just I won't forget him winning at big odds that day from memory. 
Yeah, that was a great slipper, uh, a great slipper field because he beat Octagonal, who who really on breeding had no right to be there in a slipper, but he was he was such a fantastic racehorse. He showed that enormous ability right from the start. And um, Flying Spur was a very quirky horse. I I run him in both the Blue Diamond and the Sires in Melbourne, and he disappointed in both, particularly in the Blue Diamond when he ran himself off the track and then flashed home. And I think ran second to one of Hazy's, not beaten that far, but. Um, and then I ran him in the size, and he, he ran a very average, you know, minor placing or fourth in the size, something like that. And I put him in the paddock, and I was I, I kept telling John how much ability this horse had, John Massara. And uh, but I said, you just, I just can't get into his head at the moment. You know, he does too many things wrong. Anyway, I went up to our farm where we spelled him, and I was watching him in the paddock there one day, or probably only a week or ten days later. And he just looked magnificent. He was flying around the paddock and pig rooting, and I thought, you know, this is nonsense. We we should have a crack at the slipper. You know, maybe maybe something will work out. And I remember at the time, John was truly pissed off with me about getting the horse back in. And why did you do that? I said, well, you should go down and have a... We shipped him straight to Sydney, and John went down and had a look at him and said, oh, I can see why you did it now. So he backed, he backed me and the boys to the hilt to do that. And, um, you know, uh, Jimmy Cassidy was supposed to ride him, mm-hmm. and then there was, a, there was a jockey tape nonsense came out, I think, that one night, the night before, the slipper, and there was only one senior jockey that I'd even heard of left, and that was Glenn Boss. And that was the beginning of um, quite a long and successful um, relationship with Glenn uh, riding some of our horses, and uh, he jumped on that horse day one and kind of clicked with him and got all the runs up the inside and managed to get over the line. So it was a pretty big shock, but not a complete shock to us because we knew what ability the horse had. Staying in memory lane, uh, people will have their favourite races and different races around uh, you know that they like. The 1992 Cox Plate, I mean, if anyone has uh, access to... I don't know, an internet and go and have a look back at, at, at that particular yeah. field. Good Goodness me, Lee. What's, I mean, your recollection of that day would have to be mixed in so many ways. Well, it was, Richard, because um, uh, uh, naturalism had gone into that race as a raging hot favourite, and so he should have been. His, his form leading up to it was outstanding. He, he was the premier weight for age horse for about a year, and you know, Mick, Mick Dipplin was riding him, and Mick wouldn't hear of him being beaten. He said, you know, words to the effect that it was just a matter of going around and fronting up at the presentation. And I guess in a lot of ways that that was probably true, even though that was a great race. I mean, you had a you had a, an ageing, better loosen up, trying to get back to form. What a great horse he he had been, and uh, similarly with. Um, can I can I go through the field just quickly, Lee? Yeah. Super yeah, well, superimposed Kinja Tay, slight chance, better loosen up. Let's elope. Prince Salieri, mannerism, Coronation Day, Muirfield Village, burst, rough habit, Palace Rain, yeah. sinister naturalism. Well, arguably, and I mean, I'm I'm open to 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 the fight, but I think arguably the best cox plate that's been run in the last 50 years, to be honest, uh, other than Winx's. But that was for a different reason, not because of the standard of the field, but the standard of the performer, which probably made them great cox plates. But as an even field that had won something like 30, I don't know, some ridiculous number of 30-something group ones between them, 
it was a terrific race. Anyway, look, um, history has it that, you know, naturalism fell over and uh, an old super who was very much in his twilight, um, you know, went to the outside and got home and uh, looked like the Dodgem cars at the Sydney, Sydney showgrounds. You know, they just, the horses getting knocked over everywhere. But he managed to escape all that. And um, it was a mixed day because um, both sets of owners were, were, were very close to the stable. The Tricaricos had the major interest in naturalism, and amongst many others, but they had the major interest in him. And of course, Chris Biggins and a lot of his mates were the owners of Superimpose. And, uh, um, you know, it was just a remarkable day to have the favourite fall and then the other horse come down the outside and win the race. So, you know, they're things you never forget in racing because you get your share of rotten luck and, and, you know, when you get a bit of luck like that, that's, that's just remarkable. Amazing race. We, we, Lee, we look at, uh, and you would have seen introduction of new races like the Everest, like the Golden Eagle. Uh, this might be a bit of, of an unfair question, but, I mean, <laughs> horses through your yard... Um, and we're comparing generations, which is tougher again. But I'm, I reckon you'd be able to look back and say, "Gee, that would have been a nice Everest horse. Would have been hard to beat in the Golden Eagle." Yeah, yeah. It's almost uh, a it's almost a moot question, isn't it, Lee? Because it'll well, it you can't is. go back it in is. time. Yeah, it's hard to compare horses to different years. But my answer would probably surprise you a little, in that the two horses of, 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 that we've trained over the years that I would have thought at their peak would have been a great chance in either of those races would have been Bint Masque, who was an absolute... No-one ever saw the best of her. No-one knew how much ability that, that filly had with her bad legs. Um, freakish, freakish filly. And we, we never really got to see the best of her. I think she only ever had maybe 10 starts in life. And Mahogany. Mahogany would have been a superb mm. horse for the Everest, I would have thought. And he's prime and, and primed up for the race. I think Scalacci being an on-pace horse would have been competitive. Um, but I think Mahogany would have been the perfect horse for that race. I, I mean, of all the horses you've had in your care, for, I mean, he could he could literally do anything. He could, yeah. Um, it was never a real surprise when he sprinted as well later on because... I remember after he won the the VRC derby in a canter and went out for their normal, you know, month to five weeks break over the over the late spring and then prepared. And I think we had him ready for a 1,000-metre open race at Sandown to resume in um, in February, I think. And uh, he uh, he carried 57 kilos, which is, you know, decent weight even for a derby winning three-year-old, and he bolted up over a thousand meters and uh, that's that's the sort of speed he had amazing horse if if you um if it wasn't to be a racehorse trainer what do you think you might have done was it, what what, uh, what else might have career-wise interested you <laughs> um that's a good question um Probably, probably something to do in entertainment business because I, I have a real passion for music and uh, and uh, a memory for music and that. And I, I have quite a big catalogue of of LPs and, and and these days digital music. So maybe something in that area. I'm, I'm a pretty pretty average singer, so I don't know about that. But I did take no, you're nice. for what? Huh? 
<laughs> I did take the piano for a while, but I've got quite short, fat fingers, so I didn't really get the, the spans quite right. I made I made sub level of piano, um, but then got distracted. So look, what a heap of rubbish, anyway. Perhaps that. Um, I hadn't really, I haven't really given that much thought over the years. What about politics? Um, no, I'm a definite non-runner there because um, although I spout a lot of political opinions of that, I'm not, uh, I'm not, uh, how am I going to put this? I'm not the right person for that job. <laughs> <laughs> Elaborate. Uh, I just think it takes over their lives and um, uh, it's become so, uh, more so in, in recent years, the uh, the appeal of minor parties that really only have a wedging effect on politics uh, I'm going to get myself into so much strife here, but no one's listening. Um, Lee. Where you go? Yeah, the major the major parties are only attracting thirty odd thirty plus percent of the vote, and the other third is going to minor parties. Which, what I'm basically trying to say is, it's very hard to get anything done now without mm. uh, without bending a lot of a lot of uh, curves. And um, you know, it remains to be seen where where our politics is going to end up in the future. Yeah, would uh, tend to agree that a little bit for sure. If you could look back at a, a younger Lee Freeman uh, and give them a little bit of advice, or even a, a young trainer coming through uh, the ranks, and looking back, what would you what would you say to a, a younger self or someone in your, in, in your position, keep uh, getting going with things? Well, um, make plenty of mistakes. Stakes, but make sure you're using a lot of other wealthy people's money to make those mistakes. <laughs> um, look, I think it's an enormous advantage uh, in the modern era to have a to, to have major backers behind you. And then, look, um, some of these stables these days have major financial backing behind them in one form or another, and that's fine. And, and some of these young people training now have got terrific ability and administrative ability, being able to run these vast stables through a myriad of states, but um, it can be a very hard road for a young trainer to get to the top now without some sort of backing. I mean, you've, you've got to... It's very hard to stand out when you when you haven't got anything to, to really wear, you know? You, so, need a, you need a social media department for a start. Well, you do. Uh, well, that's something I haven't been really good at, and I'm possibly too old to really embrace it now, but... But uh, yeah, you do. I mean, it's so it's so important to the modern day trainer to be able to master that. And I think someone who's done it really well, apart from the you know the major stables and the usual you know pats on the back and all that sort of thing, I think Mitchell Beer has done a fantastic job with a small stable in a country area. He's got himself because he's got a very quirky sense of humour, uh, but but a very good horse trainer at the same time, and he manages to incorporate those two really well. And I think. He's pitched himself into into a place in the market where he's doing really well. I think that's quite clever, actually. Yeah, I would uh, I would absolutely agree with that. Now, mm. we as as we wind this chat down, Lee, I, I, I just I, I just have some horses in front of me here, and I was, I was going to ask you for a, a a one word comment on each horse, but it might be a bit unfair. But just brief comments on on these horses as we wind this chat down, and I'll. I'll go from the top here, and uh, I'll let you let you talk. But let's start with Maccabi Diva. Freakish. Mummify. Tough. 
Naturalism. Gifted. Miss Clipper. Useful. <laughs> First group one winner, wasn't she? Very useful. <laughs> Got those owners on board. Miss Andretti. Hmm. That's a good one. Uh, I'll probably have to expand on her. The greatest, one of the greatest improvers I've ever had. A great improver. What, as in she didn't show you a whole lot? She did, but she went from being um, uh, just di- diverging for a while. When we got her in the winter of that year, uh, before she started her run, the year before Ascot, she was, she was very talented mare, but probably listed uh, listed class, would you'd say. And she went from there to being a super group one horse. And that happened all in the space of about 12 months. And I really, I really, uh, I really put the credit to that down to Mark Dell when we were training there. She, we had these mares that would go there and just, because they were getting day yards and day paddocks and it was such a relaxed environment. Some of these mares' ability, which was untapped before, suddenly you know, you saw you saw what they could be because of that, and and Maccabi Diva was another example of that. Doremus, great stayer. In Costa de Lago. Mm. I can't quite categorise him. He's just. Just a, a very good horse uh, by a very unfashionable stallion who went on to become a very good stallion. There's three to go. Merlene. Uh, untapped. Alingi. Uh, she nearly goes in the freakish class. Superimpose. Remembered. <laughs> Lee Friedman, thank you for being this morning's Monday expert. Again, I'm, I, this could be the first and last time I'm in this chair, depending if, you know, if Dave Stanley uh, is not here for another Monday. But it's a great pleasure to chat, and uh, we could have gone for another half an hour, an hour, but much appreciated. No, my, my pleasure, Richard, and thank you. Thanks for having me. And I'm sure, I'm sure Dave, even though he's very proud of my others, he's probably not here to me. So. <laughs> Good man. Thank you. See you, mate. Bye. Bye. There he is, Lee Freeman, this morning's Monday expert here on Racing HQ.